Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Charles Venet. He is CEO at 48 North. We're going to talk to him about the work they're doing in the Canadian market. Some interesting stuff. I know people that know what's going on in Canada in terms of federal federal regulation. You know, went went uh, adult use a while ago. It's been interesting to see how that market plays out. A lot of kind of uh, ups and downs, I guess I would say, in the last uh, eighteen months. But you know, it's interesting. I think it's a it's a great market to look at in terms of what happens uh, or what can happen when you really kind of look at cannabis at a federal level. I know in the states here, we're still grappling with this kind of crazy state by state. Situation, so I think everyone's been looking at Canada as a little bit of a you know test in terms of what it looks like when when a federal government does this, particularly in North America. So I'm excited to talk about that and insights and experiences that Charles had, and should be a fun conversation. So with that, Charles, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on. Delighted to be here. Yeah, so uh, delighted to have you. Let's do background first. Let's give me a little sense of you know what was your background professionally? How did you get into cannabis? And then we can talk about 48 North and 
and the work you're doing. But what's the backstory? Yeah, it's a, it's a good place to start. So I, you know, I'm a native Montrealer, and uh, and so I graduated with a, a degree in economics and finance. And um, and you know, I, I disappointed my parents by choosing not to work in uh, in capital <laughs> markets and actually working in, uh-huh. in uh, a business that my family had um, an investment in, which is a food manufacturing company. And they were quite puzzled by this decision, but I, I discovered early on that uh, I really enjoyed being an entrepreneur. And yeah. uh, I, I can recall even to my third grade days, we still had that investment in the, um, in the cereal bar company. And so I, I used to sell Rice Krispie squares out of my locker and my business partner would, would send it. his mother to Costco to get soft drinks. So we had you know a buck for Rice Krispie square, a buck for a soft drink. Or the ever popular dollar fifty combo, and and that was that was great um, and, and, until the uh, you know the recess supervisor shut it down at school. But so I you know I'd, I'd always sort of had that inkling in me, and I really enjoyed getting my hands dirty and and, and touching a little bit of everything, right? And and, and yeah. having the risk. I, I did enjoy my brief time in asset management, but you know I, I got as I told my friends, I got up three times a day, you know, twice to go use the bathroom and once to go pick up my lunch and bring it back to my desk. Whereas being an entrepreneur, you're on your feet, you're, you're in front of clients one minute and the next you're, you're, you know, you're, you're budgeting or you're, you're doing some financial analysis. And, and the next minute you're talking to suppliers and you're down on the floor and you're, so it's, you know, it's on the factory floor rather not down and out, hopefully, but, it, but it's, it's fascinating and it's fun and it's pressure and it's ups and downs and, and everything that comes with it. And, you know, I, I've taken on more and more responsibility and, and actually sold that business uh, two years into it. And I was 24, 25 at the time. And I went around Montreal and I said, hey, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm a young entrepreneur. I can take businesses and, and fix them up a little bit. And I've made an exit and it was a good one. And, uh, and why don't you finance me? And people said, kid, you're 24 or 25 or whatever I was. And said, go do it again. Maybe we'll talk. And so off I went and, and, and kept searching and searching until... I looked and my family had made an investment in the 80s into a private cigarette manufacturing company. And somebody said to me, Charles, why don't you go and cut your teeth there? Prove that you can do it. Yeah, said, well, yeah but it's cigarettes. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, well, you know, it's like New York. If you can make it in tobacco, you can make it anywhere. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you know, really that, you know, first of all, there was only one independent cigarette manufacturer in Canada. That was the one that we had uh, that was not on a, on a First Nations reserve. Yeah. And so that's, and there's a real uniqueness to that in the sense that it was a market that was dominated in Canada by three multinationals. And then you had, yeah. um, you know, quite a prevalent illicit market that still exists in, in Canada uh, as it concerns tobacco. And as a, historically a, a value brand producer, that was quite a challenge. So I took over a company that, you know, for the prior decade had averaged a, a top line decline of 35% year over year. But it was one where, you know, there were, there was a great team, there were jobs, the model and the industry had completely changed. But, you know, the company had relatively little debt. The shareholders had been there for, in some cases, 30 plus years. And uh, it was actually the company that was established by the French tobacco monopoly to make their Gitane in the Gaulois originally for North America. So it was an old place. It had equipment, oh, really? it had yeah. an infrastructure. And I said, you know, rather than just let this sort of peter out and, and you know, why, why don't we try to build something? And so I convinced the shareholders of which my family were one that I should do this. My mother you know, being very, um, at the time, uh, you know, like I said, I was 24. So she said to me, Charles, mm-hmm. what are you, you're going to go, you know, ruin your reputation going into tobacco. And I said, well, look, uh, I, I actually mm-hmm. think, I think differently. It's a regulated industry. It's, it's legal. It's a difficult place, mm-hmm. but it's a great, you know, it's, it's, it's a great place for me to cut my teeth. And so the deal we made is great. Go do your MBA on the weekends. 
and um, and they would and they would support it. So I love it. So that's what I went about doing. And so in that experience, you know, I I was able with that team to widen our distribution across Canada. We opened up uh, accounts in the United States, in the Caribbean, in the Middle East, and we signed some really lovely and and important for the company contract manufacturing agreements to Copac for some of the the world's multinational cigarette companies. So it was a great way for me to actually train for the cannabis industry in that there's, you know, in Canada in particular, the Cannabis Act was actually written on the back of the Tobacco Act. And if you, in Canada, you actually have to excise stamp all of your cannabis. Well, it's the same thing in cigarettes. And so a lot of that framework existed and was familiar to me. And so what led me to 48 North was that after I sold Bastos, and, uh, which was a cigarette company, and, and, and it was a nice exit mm-hmm. for me. I was 30 years old and, and looking for another challenge. And uh, that's when uh, 48 North reached out. And uh, what they liked was my background in um, the you know, heavily operational and heavily regulated industries. And mm-hmm. what I liked about 48 North and what you know, excites me every day about it is that I saw a company that had one brand of the year in 2018 without a retail product to sell. It had all of the elements of branding and it had assets that were underdeveloped and underutilized and it needed process, it needed structure and needed rigor. But what I consider the tough part, which is, you know, the branding and creating the appeal and the the real sort of value statement for the company, the, the why, right? The why are we here and why buy our products and services? That part had been done well. We were just missing product and we were missing really that, that infrastructure to, to successfully commercialize it. And the good news was, like I said, I, I felt like that was something that, that I was good at. And so I joined the company first as chief corporate officer last August, so just under a year ago. And I was named CEO of the company on March 9th uh, of 2020. Yeah. I'm curious what... I mean, I, I guess conceptually, I can get what the what the carryover was for you from tobacco to cannabis. But I mean, I guess would give me some more details on you know, sort of. Obviously, there's the kind of the regulatory kind of side of things. But what else were you able to transfer from the experience of tobacco into the work you're doing now? And also, what did not transfer? I mean, I'm curious, like what things, like hey, this is how we did things. This is what I learned how to do it. But then you got into cannabis and was like, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> Like, like, what were the surprises or what were the things that didn't transfer perfectly? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and not, look, nothing's analogous, right? And, and even my food background really helped as well, right? There's tremendous regulation in food. Yeah. And, and so I think what transferred well was how to operate in a regulatory framework specific to tobacco is, you know, how do you get the word out to retailers and to consumers about a product with which you have tremendous advertising restrictions? So the regulation, the rigor, you know, this idea in, in Canada that you talk a lot about, you know, seed to sale tracking. Well, that's something that's, mm-hmm. you know, really that's just called traceability. And that's common in a variety of different industries, including, you know, food, pharma and tobacco, alcohol, basically any consumable yeah. good. And in fact, even, you know, car parts, you know, have stringent requirements on traceability. So operating in a very complex and heavy regulated environment is something that transferred over well. But, you know, let's be clear, cannabis is not identical to tobacco. And one of the things that you certainly don't want to transfer over, and you look at cigarettes, you know, the sort of a habit, right? It's not, it's not yeah. much of an experience, right? It's, and so mm-hmm. cannabis is, is much more of an experience. It's more like wine than it is a pure commodity. And, and there, there will be commoditized yeah. cannabis products, particularly in the value end. But what you've, what you've got in cannabis too, is that you've got some different types of user segments. And the legacy user is one that's 
that's very interesting in cannabis in that, you know, when cannabis became legalized in Canada under the regulatory framework first in October 2018, some consumers had a backlash. First and foremost, the quality has not always been there from Canadian licensed producers. And the pricing relative to the legacy market, right, relative to what their dealers were offering them, wasn't always as competitive. Mm -hmm. And if you also look at it, I mean, the people who made a tremendous amount of money in this industry early on, you had a lot of promotion and you, you, there was a lot of hype that was sold. And so some consumers and, and some stakeholders in the legacy market have not looked too kindly upon the regulated cannabis companies. And I believe that's in some ways that, you know, you've got a bunch of new entrants, quote unquote, a bunch of suits that are playing mm -hmm. to the stock market. So in Canada, our Wall Street is Bay Street, right? And you've got a bunch of people playing to Bay Street. Mm -hmm. And then you've got people who have been working in an industry for a variety of different reasons. But I, we have several on our team that worked for years in compassion clubs and lived through the police raids. And yeah. we're just trying to help people and to consume a product that they enjoyed and were considered criminals societally. And you've got a wave of, of, of people in, in shiny suits making stock plays. And naturally, that created a bit of a, of a resentment. And so, you know, you've seen certain, you know, customers and certain industry stakeholders that were there that looked at this and they said, well, hold on a second. Like, this isn't just tobacco. It's not just a farmer product. It's not quit looking only at the dollars and cents of this because there's, there's an art to cannabis, to the cultivation aspect, to creating products. And that part may have been lost early on, but that's something that we at 48 North are really conscious about trying to balance the science aspect, right? Guys like me who come in, who are, you know, manufacturing, process-driven, structure-driven, and somebody who actually knows what the hell they're talking about as it concerns cultivating cannabis and creating the best yeah. types of products, but who haven't necessarily done it in a regulated framework and more often than not have not done it at scale. And so you've got to marry those cultures. So, you know, when I got to the cigarette company, I was handed by my predecessor a book from the French tobacco monopoly from the 50s. Okay. And he said, hey, Charles, here's the tobacco Bible. It's an old book. Everything is still true. Now, some of the technology had improved, some of the processes had been refined, but it was true. Yeah. Everything that we knew about making cigarettes in the 50s still holds true today. That's not the case with cannabis. There's not much industrial knowledge in a formal way. There's a lot of people that have a tremendous amount of expertise in it, and they haven't always been the ones that have been listened to. So you're basically trying to take frameworks that are newly developing, products that are known to some consumers, but to many others are not at all. Brand recognition is mm -hmm. not there. So you've, you've got a lot of unknown, and you're trying to, to navigate very, very uncertain waters in a very complex regulatory regime. And I don't think that there's any experience in any industry that can quite adequately prepare you for that. And I think the best skill set at that point that you can possess, and one that I'm fortunate to be surrounded you know, by people who really have it, is intellectual curiosity. Yeah. Ask every question you can think of. There are no bad ones. And so we just hired a chief operating officer who's you know, got 20 years of experience in the food industry with some of the world's largest food companies. And, and beverage and, you know, like, you know, PepsiCo's and Mondelez Internationals of the world and just came from Safina Foods, which is a very large private meat and protein company in Canada. And he came in and he said, Charles, how do I learn about cannabis? I said, well, one, talk to our, our cultivation experts, read mm -hmm. everything you can. And number two, ask every question that you would have if you walked into a food facility. You'll be surprised by how on point 
that will be. And uh, and he's he's just under two weeks in, and, and already I'm astounded by um, how quickly he's picking it up because it's it's exactly that, right? He understands quality frameworks, he understands the regulation aspect, and then he's humble enough to understand what he doesn't know. And we've got that type of attitude in, in droves at the, at the company, which is part of why I think we're going to be successful. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one because I've seen a lot of experts come from other industries, whether it's you know food or agricultural or pharmaceutical, and and you know having run very large companies and very sophisticated businesses, and the transfer to cannabis, it's it's like a fifty fifty <laughs> success rate. You know, sometimes they they're just so used to operating in certain ways that they just can't make the adjustments. You know, both into cannabis just because of the uniqueness of cannabis, but also early stage market that's still growing and developing. They're not the standards. There's not the infrastructure. There's not the supply chains in there that there are in other industries. But I think you hit it with that idea of that curiosity of you're much more likely to successfully transfer if you're willing to put all of your knowledge at least to the side a little bit <laughs> and and be willing to kind of be a little bit open and a little bit curious to say, okay, look, this is the way I've done things before and that's great, but I need to be willing to be open to the idea that I may need to change a lot of those, if not all of those coming into this new space. Any examples or anything that you see in terms of people successfully making the jump from another industry, particularly well-developed industries into cannabis? Well, I'll, I'll give you one example in our company of, of someone who actually comes from the legacy market and has made a wonderful transition to a more regulated type of environment too, which I think is equally important. You know, we've got yeah. a gentleman on, on our team, Neil Galan, he's our VP of cannabis operations. And he's a wonderful example because you, you hit the nail on the head, right? People come in with their own expertise. And the key that you look for in, in a team is going to be balance, right? Where, where one's pushing, you're going to want them to pull and vice versa, right? And you, you want you want to encourage good debate, healthy debate, and may mm-hmm. the best idea win, right? So yes, you've got a lot of working stiffs like me that come into this industry and have a lot to learn about the artsy side of cannabis. But then, you know, you've got a guy like Neil, our VP of Cannabis Ops, who who ran a business in the legacy market and has has just been a wonderful addition to our team because he comes from that world and then, and then says to us, okay, guys, I'm going to teach you about the cannabis aspect. You teach me about how to how to scale this thing? How to run a real manufacturing process, etc. So his background is really interesting. His family's got a, a hotel and banquet hall on the west island of Montreal, or just west of Montreal, rather. And uh, mm-hmm. and he used to run the kitchen, and so he's run kitchens for you know for seatings of 250, 500 person dinners, etc. So he's got a really good understanding of personnel management and how to how operations should flow. And so there's somebody, again, who's intellectually curious, who brings a really specific set of expertise, but who recognizes that what he was doing in the legacy market in a regulated environment, when you're servicing more than your local area and you're, you're really looking to build a national brand, the process is going to be quite different. So mm-hmm. again, that's a guy who's been successful because he had a skill set and an expertise, and he was intellectually curious enough and desired to really join and learn that aspect of it. So we're actually seeing it from both sides. I would tell you that we've had amazing experience with people on our quality and regulatory team that have pharma backgrounds, and then they come in and yeah, they you know they've they've essentially got to learn the cannabis act from scratch. But the frameworks there, as long as they're intellectually curious, they want to they want to understand how this specific industry works, and you're willing to do the work to stay current because the regulations a year ago are not the regulations today. They will <laughs> yeah. evolve, they evolve, and they will continue to evolve. Yeah, I mean, give me your take on, I guess, how, how you've seen the kind of the regulatory framework get rolled out and, 
I mean, I know Canada had a kind of a phased approach in terms of what products it was going to be authorizing and, and rolling out. I guess give us some insight for those that are not as familiar with the Canadian market, how that played out, where are you, what's kind of working, what's not, how do you anticipate you know, the coming quarters, the coming years in terms of the developing the Canadian market and the products that you're using on the legal side? And give us your take. I'm curious. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the Canadian government, the first wave of legalization was October of 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, pardon me, 2018, um, my yeah. apologies, 2019 was the 2.0 products. So those were, you know, things like uh, extracts and concentrates, vapes, topicals, yeah. edibles, etc. So they did phase it in over two years, really. And look, you know, Health Canada gets a lot of grief because it's, you know, the regulations have been heavy. The process is lengthy to get things approved, but you also have to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, the run-up to legalization was trying to understand how you can take an industry that historically was was quite misunderstood by a lot of people, and then how do you how do you bring it into a regulated framework where your your federal and provincial governments can endorse it as being safe for use and for consumption? And that's mm-hmm. that's not trivial. And, you know, I've been obviously a pro-legalization individual for a long, long time, but you have to understand that there's also many people who don't feel that way. And as politicians and as, as governmental employees, you have to represent the interests of all stakeholders, not just the pro-legalization camp. And so, you know, you've got to be prudent and you've got to be measured as to how you do that. So, so I do have sympathy for the task that Health Canada has in developing those regulations and for the provinces who in many cases have had to enforce them. And as I said, you've got to attenuate the concerns of various different stakeholders from you know, health advocates to people who are worried about you know, their children having access to a product mm-hmm. to, like I said, the pro-legalization people that are rightly and concerned and, and continue to be concerned about you know, the, the injustices as it concerns incarcerations yeah. connected to cannabis. So there's a lot at play there. And you know, when you try to keep everybody happy, what most often happens is that you know, nobody ends up happy. But if we, if we take a step back now, you know, <laughs> two years almost after full legalization, I mean, it's quite outstanding if you think about it. I mean, think of the number of companies that have emerged Consumers now have access to cannabis across the country. Has it been slower than all would have liked? Yes, it has. Yeah. Ontario, Quebec, uh, both Canada's lar- most populous provinces don't have nearly the amount of stores that they need um, in order to properly service the market, but it's improving. Um, we're seeing some of the stringent regulations that were there at the beginning that are slowly starting to get loosened as confidence builds between the regulators and the industry players. You do occasionally have setbacks. You know, everybody remembers the CanTrust fiasco, for lack of a better term, of, of approximately or just over yeah. a year ago. And obviously, that makes a lot of stakeholders skittish from Health Canada to the investor base to everybody. So, you know, you're going to have some push and pull in terms of the regulation. But you look even throughout COVID, how the government has worked really, I think, quite proactively with cannabis licensed producers and, and the other industry stakeholders to try to apply common sense to the regulation. Give you one such example. I mean, you know, you need a security cleared person to pick a person in charge at a facility at all times, but security clearances take a long time to process. And with social distancing mm-hmm. and a global pandemic, all of a sudden, you know, it became doubly hard, not only to process them, but to actually ensure that those people were on site. So, so Health Canada said, yeah, great, exactly. we're going to allow you to nominate some temporary picks. And, and there were certain conditions to meet. 
but that was a good thing. They've looked at ways that they can ease and accelerate licensing timelines. And they've done that mm-hmm. and we've benefited from it. So, you know, I think it is important to recognize that, that the regulations are getting there. And I think that, you know, you're going to see them improve uh, so long as that we as an industry and all the stakeholders within it behave in a manner that that shows that we can be trusted and and that we are going to be continuing to provide safe products to consumers. So while something like CanTrust can set you back, and it has, I think continued good actions, showing the cannabis industry to be a good actor societally, these can only be good things. And I think you're already seeing a lot more collaboration between licensed producers and, and Health Canada, which is something that I'm really glad to see. Yeah, I'm not surprised. This is, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, it's kind of part of, you know, it's going to be part of the process and, and th- things like this are going to happen. The question is how quickly can we recover and adjust and, you know, adapt the, the policies and the processes to, to deal with things like this. I'm curious strategically in, in terms of how you have approached the market, give us a sense as, as you looked at how the cannabis market was going to develop and the different sort of segments and users and, you know, different product types and product levels and things like that. How have you kind of looked at the market and chosen your kind of segment and, and why, why focus on that area as things kind of mature and the, and the market grows? That's, that's an excellent question because this is something that we talk about in the industry all the time. And a lot of commentators will say, you know, mm-hmm. cannabis companies have yet to really define their value propositions. And, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, 48 North still has a long way to go. When I joined the company, you know, there was a, a real focus on wellness and on women. And that's not something that we've wanted to depart from, but it became apparent when I arrived that we just didn't have those products in our portfolio. We did have, um, and while we do aspire to have them, we just didn't at that time. And so, you know, you look at it and you say, okay, so, so who is 48 North? Well, 48 North has tremendous craft quality cultivation up North out of one of our licensed facilities, Delshin Therapeutics. That's actually the reason for our name. It's on the 48, the 48th parallel, hence the name 48 North. And that's Mm -hmm. the original or as we say in the biz, the OG site for the company. And yep. they, it's just a wonderful team there. They grow wonderful craft quality cannabis and it's selling really well. We've got our outdoor cultivation site in Brant County. It's a hundred acre outdoor grow. It was one of the first five licenses awarded last year. And we're now in our second season of cultivation and we've been growing to organic standards. You can't certify cannabis as organic. You can certify your cultivation practices. So we, we grow to organic cultivation practices uh-huh. and we've made a transition and are doing this actively and will be over the next few years towards regenerative agriculture. And I say a transition because you can't do it year one. It's really, it's, this is a multi-year process yeah. where you stop, you know, bringing outside supplements and you, you really close the loop and become a, a self-fulfilling ecosystem. And then we've got, mm-hmm. you know, our production facility, which has automation uh, capacity for baggable flour, pre-rolls, we're manufacturing topicals, vapes, and hash. So you look at that and you say, okay, so who is 48 North? Well, from the get-go, 48 North distinguished itself as, as an authentic brand that aimed to bring quality products and guilt-free experiences to consumers. And so part of that is, okay, we look at the landscape and we make really conscious choices about the types of packaging and cultivation methods that we use because ultimately we recognize the product that and a category that people were not always proud to claim to be a consumer of. So people hid their grinders in their drawers when friends came over and they put away the pipes and the bongs and the rolling papers and all that. And, and cannabis consumption was sort of, and we thought, okay, well, you know, we want to distinguish ourselves by being the, you know, among the first to say, actually, you know what, you can be proud of that. And so we designed our fate accessories line, not to be a, 
real revenue generator for the company or a profit center. But we designed a beautiful grinder and a beautiful pipe that doubles as an insets holder so, so mm-hmm. that people can proudly display that on their coffee table. And that was really the beginning of the conversation of, at 48 North. said, well, actually, it's okay to smoke weed and you can actually be proud of it. And you don't have to feel guilty about your cannabis consumption and it can be enjoyed in, in a great many ways. So what 48 North aims to do is really be that easy on-ramp to consumers to discovering the cannabis space. But that's, that's not enough and that's not refined enough. And that's where we have to do better work as to defining what is the 48 North real label. And so that's really where we feel like what goes into a 48 North is our best quality of product, something that you can always feel really good about. Like I said, it provides a guilt-free experience. You know, it's going to be done along the most sustainable and environmentally friendly methodologies available to us at that time. And it's going to be accessible at a great price. We've got more value branded items that that appeal to different types of consumers. And we're sub-segmenting our brands to really understand who the consumers are. I say that there's a lot of work to do because I've just given you a bunch of gibberish that doesn't even look like a brand vision. (laughs) And that's the truth is like most of this industry has said, great, people want flour. Let's just throw a bunch of flour to the market. Yeah, exactly. Like, is that that ultimately what's going to shake out? And so you look at it, uh, look, if every shampoo in the shampoo aisle launched on the same day and 75% of their packaging had graphic warnings and they weren't allowed to advertise, you'd have a pretty tough time distinguishing between Head & Shoulders and Pantene Pro-V. And that's a lot of what's happened in this industry is we've just been stuffing the channels. But as you go down and look at it, then it's like, okay, so where are the gaps in the market? We identified that there was a gap in topicals. And that's, that's a product that we think is one that, that opens you up to a whole other segment of consumers. To wit, my 92-year-old grandmother uses it five times yeah, exactly. a day. Right? It's a non-psychoactive yeah. product. It's an easy way to get people to change their thinking about cannabis. It's effective and efficacious and you know what? It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's just a wonderful product. So, so this is, again, yeah. now we're starting to build that link towards wellness. And okay, so what, like, and what is even wellness, right? Does it have to be therapeutic? Is coming home at the end of the day and having a glass of wine therapeutic? To plenty of people, it is. It's really mm-hmm. what it yeah, is. Exactly. It's, it's conscious, yeah. guilt-free experiences that we're trying to provide. And we've got to be refining that. We're working actively to refine that as our team, because it's not enough to just have a good quality product, slap your logo on it and say, great, it's going to sell because people like us. But people have identified to 48 North, I believe, because of that sustainability angle, because of that consciousness, because of that authenticity. And I think as, as people have followed cannabis companies throughout their journey, we've been one of the most transparent about our faults and where we've fallen down and how we want to improve. And I think that is actually resonating with people. And you look at a bunch of people that look at it and they, you know, they use the term with air quotes around it, government weed, right? And, they, and you look at it and you go, or there's big weed, uh-huh. just like there was yeah. big tobacco and big alcohol. And 48 North has, has, has I think, uh-huh. won a real cult following because people see a company that's trying to do the right way, that is listening to the bud tenders, that's listening to the consumers and wants to commercialize product. So as we go down, I'm really excited and uh, about some of the lifestyle products that we are launching and will be launching over the, the course of the next weeks and months and quarters. Things like CBD bath bombs, some, some bath salts, an intimate oil, for example. These are different aspects of segmentation that people aren't really looking at. It's, it's some low-hanging fruit, ways to carve out a category and to build out you know, a brand that can have a halo effect that resonates on some of the other categories. Tell me about what you see as being kind of the trends that you're anticipating or you think are really going to happen in the industry, either Canada-specific or in general in cannabis. I mean, we're just such a dynamic market. Anything that you're really keeping an eye on in the coming years in terms of how cannabis plays out? Absolutely. Well, it's funny. You actually made a comment at the, at the open that 
Canada is a bit of a test case for federal legalization uh, in the U.S. And that's a very interesting take. But what I would also say is that there are markets in the United States that are good test cases for where this industry can go from a branding and product development aspect. So take California. Look at the availability of product Mm -hmm. in California, the amount of brands, the way that they've expressed themselves. I mean, we look at those trends in other markets and we say, great, this is a, a, a lens into where this industry is going to go as a whole. Consumers are going to necessarily need to um, gain better understanding of the product categories available, the the effects of certain products. I mean, we're just scratching the surface right now in Canada. People are buying mostly on THC percentage, which is which is really the metric. You know, it's it's like okay, great, how high can I get? Which is one thing, but I think that's a sign that the industry is really early stage because how much moonshine actually gets sold at the liquor store, right? If all that mattered was THC percentage, you know, it'd be the same thing as alcohol content in, in booze, right? I mean, you see people are drinking wine at 14, yeah, 15%. Yeah. You see they're drinking beer. Yeah, everyone would be on Everclear or something. <laughs> it's not just how high can you get or how drunk can you get, but what, what are the effects? I think one of the things that you'll see is that there's going to be a lot more research into the effects of terpenes, which is really, you know, the aromatherapy aspect, but of cannabis. It's like the nose of cannabis or what you would call the nose in wine. And that has a, a real effect, certainly more so on the type of, of buzz that you get from your cannabis than THC. That research, we're just still scratching the surface, but I think you're going to see a shift towards people who want to consume cannabis, not just to get as stoned as they possibly can, but as part of an experience. And so that's one of the things that 48 North is actually doing in, in terms of our national campaign is to is to effectively target and and develop products for certain experiences so hey are are you having a dinner with friends there's a product that we sell that actually would would fit well into that atmosphere and it doesn't you know if you're wanting to have a conversation maybe the highest thc content isn't isn't what you're looking for so i I think you're going to see different types of products get developed that will respond to changing consumer needs the consumers are still learning about um, about the, the cannabis as a whole. So, you know, the same way that a, a, you don't see many people walk into the liquor store and say, hi, I'm looking for alcohol. And you don't see that many people go, hi, I'm looking for wine. You see a lot of people go in and say, hi, I, uh, I'm going to a friend's house. We're going to be having a barbecue with steaks. I know they really like red wine and it's their 30th wedding anniversary. I'd like to get them something nice. Ah, now we're talking, right? And so... I think that's what you're going to start to see is the consumers yeah, yeah. is going to get better educated about the different types of products, the different sort of scenarios in which they'd like to use those products, whether it be something non-psychoactive, like my grandmother using a topical for her arthritis, or you know somebody buying a pack of pre-rolls the same way they, they buy a bottle of wine before they go to a dinner, or anything in between. And then it'll be up to yeah. the licensed producers to work with retailers and work with the provincial distributors to develop and successfully commercialize those types of products. And the companies that will be successful and the brands that will be successful are the ones that refine consumer segments and develop products to respond to their needs and that will appeal to them. This is a CPG game. And ultimately, we're all fighting for consumers' attentions and really their wallets. And the way you do that, you know, is, is, it can vary, but ultimately, that's what building a brand is. And so that's what I'm most excited about is that, you know, we've, we've, really found a way, I think, to connect with consumers through our, our, our different brands and our different platforms. 
our outreach to them. People are curious about 48 North product. They can finally try it. They finally have different form factors. It's our job to keep listening to them and keep developing products that they're going to enjoy so that we can, we can earn their loyalty over time, build that market share, build a profitable, sustainable business. And you know the other trend that's inevitable is consolidation. And we feel like you know the best way to position ourselves in what is necessarily going to be a big wave of consolidation in Canada our view is that we've got to create market share and we've got to be profitable. And that gives uh, us the best chance to return, you know, to our shareholders um, to, yeah. to increase our stock price and, and ultimately to put us in the best position, whether it's to be acquired, to be a standalone or to be a consolidator. Ultimately, all roads lead to Rome. You need a real sustainable business, you need consumers and you need market share. That's what will get rewarded by capital markets. And that's what will not only let you survive, yeah. it can allow you to thrive in in this complex space. And, and it's going to be a fun ride, man. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Charles, it's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about 48 North, what's the best way to get that information? Well, so you can go on our website, www.48north.com, or NERTH, as our team likes to say. <laughs> We've also got an Instagram, so you can just look us up at 48 North. We're on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn as well. And we love to hear feedback from customers. And I, I love people reaching out with any questions or comments. Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. Thank you for your time. And uh, I hope you and I can stay in touch as uh, we navigate our own journeys in this space. Yeah, now I would love to. And I'll make sure that all the URLs and the handles and everything are in the show notes so people can get that information. Charles, thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bruce. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.